Morning, everyone. Um, last week, well, we obviously we're in the Watch Your Story series, and that's you know, happening two ways. One is obviously on a Sunday morning where there's input, and then during the week in life group. So once again, if you're not in life group and you want an experience of life group, then this really is an opportunity to go and just to listen to people, get to know other people. And, and when Brandon was speaking last week, he spoke about this idea of stewarding your story, listening and believing how the person experiences their story. So this idea that you get to share as much as you want to share. Um, and, and everyone just gets to listen. I, I missed the first week and then I went back this week and one of the people started sharing and then when three minutes I had a question and I was like, oh, you can't ask questions! Because okay, I'm a very curious person. So I shut down immediately. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful place just to... And, and the key there is this whole idea of... Brandon was talking about this idea of vulnerability and ownership. So essentially, you sharing your story is a vulnerable thing where you are, I suppose, lifting the lid on your life to a degree. And it is your story, it's your experience, and, and it's not something that anyone argues with. And, it's, and as I get into, into what I want to talk about this morning, you'll start to see that how similar, in many respects, our stories are. Um, I suppose it's, it's just different ways in which we they'll probably experience pain or understand certain things. Um, and that similarity sort of binds us together in many ways. But what I want to talk about this morning in the next part of the series is going beyond and talking about the stories of others. And when I started thinking about this, I, I actually remember watching a uh, TED talk by Chimamanda Adichie. I called it The Danger of a Single Story. And I thought that was a wonderful title for this morning, The Danger of a Single Story. And I want to take us through a little bit of what she said. And then I want to take us through very quickly some stories in the Bible around uh, how Jesus really shows us or, yeah, I suppose shows us that there is more to a person than just a single story that we sometimes see when we read uh, the Bible. So she, she's a Nigerian author and um, she, she said she grew up reading American and British uh, authors. That was all that was available to her. And, and she said all she heard or saw in those books were white, blue-eyed people playing snow, eating apples, and they're always talking about the weather, and especially happy when the sun came out. But as a black person, she had never seen snow, all they ate was mangoes, and they never spoke about the weather because the sun was always shining. And it's got me thinking about, you know, my story as a child, where I grew up. I grew up in Pretoria during the 70s and 80s, and the sort of the height of apartheid in Pretoria, very Afrikaans uh, area, very Afrikaans city at that particular time. Obviously only a white city. And, um, and, uh, and we were English-speaking people. And my dad was not only a businessman, he was actually a politician. He actually stood for parliament. Uh, he was part of the forerunner of the DA called the Progressive Federal Parliament. So his contemporaries were people like uh, Frederick von Salzlavitz, Helen Sussman, and I grew up in a, in, a, in a sort of a politically aware home where my dad, uh, I remember you know, some nights my dad would disappear and he would have to go into Mamelodi, um, which is a, the, the township there, because there was cops you know, running into the township and, and causing trouble. And uh, contrary to the Group Areas Act, he actually, we had a very big property, um, which was obviously because we were able to afford it. And uh, he built a house for our domestic and her family. Um, on the property. I remember my dad being in the newspaper one twice as he would take on the government and he was always like, they must come and get me, they must come and get me, because they never did. <laughs> and then he had um, 
these two buddies, black guys, who he played golf. And every weekend he would go to the golf club across the road from us, where they wouldn't allow black people, and he insisted that they'd be allowed to play. And then they wouldn't allow them into the clubhouse afterwards to have a beer. So he would sit in the garden with these guys. And my brother and I grew up caddying for these, these gentlemen. One of them was, I can't remember the other guy's name, one guy's name was Jeff Mpakati. Very tall, he looked like a basketball player. He was like this lanky, tall guy. And actually, he had studied in the US, and so he had this sort of combination of South African and US accent. It was quite funny. And so one day, I remember that I wanted to start a social club at our house for whatever reason. And I put up a sign in the lane behind our house. And this lane was, the property was big enough that it had a, like a back gate, and we would bring our cars in by the back gate. But the lane was also a lane which the gardeners and the domestic workers used because it was a direct route to the train station. It was a little village I grew up called Irene. And today it's engulfed by Centurion. But at that point it was a very small village. It was actually the home of Jan Smuts. And I put up the sign and it said, whatever it said, and then it said, no black people allowed. No black people allowed. Amazing. It's amazing how impressionable and vulnerable we are to stories, especially as children. What was the story that I had heard growing up in that household? And what is the script that often the stories that we hear as kids that we, we carry into our adult lives? Adichie says, stories shape our understanding of the world and influence our perceptions of others and ourselves. They, they shape our understanding of the world. My understanding of that world was that as much as there were black people in my life, the story I heard is that we're not good enough. And she said, that, she said the unintended consequences of Western literature were that people like her could not exist in literature. There were no stories to be told about people like her. But it was only once she got exposed to African authors that she found people like her could actually exist in literature. And she was, she says, saved from the danger of a single story that she could not be seen to be good enough in, in literature. She speaks of the narrative at that particular time was that Nigerian people didn't like to read. And there was the uh, publisher, I can't remember what his name was now, but he, he believed, no, African people will read as long as you make the books accessible and affordable. And so he started a publishing house, and he is her publisher. And she tells the story of, of going to, uh, I think it was her first book, and she had sort of a public reading. And afterwards, the, the cleaning lady came up to her afterwards and said, no, she didn't like the, the ending of the book, and this was how the sequel should look. And she said she was not only flattered, but she was honored, because this showed that people who read stories where they can see themselves in the stories will identify with those stories and will be able to speak into those stories. This weekend I was at uh, Bali School for the notorious school camp out for those parents who are in these schools and for some reason the school believes that they need to <coughs> bring you to the school fields with all the children in camp with a million other people. <laughs> and um, most of, most of uh, Bali's friends are black children. And that evening the parents that I was hanging out were uh, four black families, but mostly with the, the, the black fathers. The dads. All these guys are younger than me, for obvious reasons. Um, and I met a guy at Temple, powerfully built and fit African guy. And obviously, we started talking, and I found out he's a runner. He's running like seven comrades. 
Uh, he's now started cycling. He rode the uh, Joburg Cycle Tour uh, a couple of months ago without any training. So they got into the shower. And as he was showering, the blood just sort of coming out everywhere. Um, we spoke about documentaries, about the Lance Armstrong documentary. Um, and Michael Jordan, wonderful uh, documentary about Michael Jordan. And eventually you get to work, you know, what, you know, you sort of circle around. And I caught myself being surprised that he's actually a PhD in chemical engineering lecturing at UCT. And the, and the reason I say caught myself surprised because I had, despite my upbringing, and I still that script bequeathed to me that, and it still lingers under the surface, that, that a black man like that cannot also be smart, right? He's just built for the physical, for the strength. It's interesting that much is made of absent black fathers. Yet there I was with four present fathers, four dads, loving their children. In fact, uh, the one guy, he brought his whole family and the nannies. <laughs> Adichie says this, that is how you create a single story. Show people as one thing and only one thing over and over again. And that is what they we say that again. That is how you create a single story. Show people as one thing and one thing only, over and over again. And that is what they become. She goes on to say that you cannot talk about a single story without talking about power. The definition of power in the dictionary is the ability to act or have influence over others. She uses it in a Nigerian word that means to be greater than the other. And in the economic and political world, she says, stories are defined by power. How they are told, who tells them, when they are told, and how many stories are told are really dependent on power. Now, for those of you who are old enough who, who, who are, uh, grew up in the apartheid state, you will understand that the power at that particular time was held by the nationalist white government. And, and, the, and the narrative and the story was this, this idea of the swat kafar, this, the, the black danger. And black people were something to be, feel, to be feared. And I was actually speaking to these guys on, um, and uh, two of them, so two or three of them are actually uh, at UCT, these black fathers. And, and I was telling them about, I said, do you remember a time when UCT was called Moscow on the Hill? And they didn't even know that. Because when I was at UCT, it was seen as this bastion of communism. Because it was it was liberal in its thinking, and it was it was taking on it was one of the you know, sort of few universities I think alongside the FITS and many of the black universities that were actually taking on apartheid. But the the narrative at that particular time, the story was controlled by those who were in power, and the black person was a domestic, was a gardener, was a laborer. That was the story. And there's this fascinating book written by Professor Jonathan Johnson called In the Blood, where he talks about his experience as the Dean of Education at uh, the Victoria University. And, and the, the book, I suppose, for me, was summed up in this, in this where he said, what, what he, the reason he wrote the book is that we had all these young white Afrikaners who had never experienced apartheid, had never lived in apartheid. They'd been born after uh, democracy had started. Yet they still held the same views of apartheid. And he spoke of, and he realized that it was, it was everything. It was the church they were they were, the churches that were in big religious propaganda, if you like, about who white people and black people are. He, he, 
He spoke about what happened around the dinner table at white people's houses and who was dominating the conversation and who was setting the narrative. And it's a fascinating book in understanding the idea of who's telling the story, what part of the story you're telling them, and, and why, and when, and so on. She says, this power is not only the ability to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. And in the minds of white people in apartheid, the definitive story was that black people were dangerous, that they were to be feared. She quotes this Palestinian poet. poet. It's ironic because this story is 14 years ago. This uh, TED talk is 14 years ago. And in this time, she, she quotes this Palestinian poet. It's such a powerful quote. If you want to dispossess people, thing just went off. Oh, it's connecting again. Zoom. Just went off. I just saw the screen change. Oh, it says it's connecting. Maybe it's lost. Okay, let's go. Okay, so this, his name's uh, Maurit Bahuti. Bahuti. And he says this, if you want to dispossess people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story, and listen to this, and start with secondly. Secondly, if you want to dis dispossess people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with secondly. So she uses an example. Start the story with the failure of the African state and not with the colonial creation of the African state and you have an entirely different story. That got me thinking. Sure. Start the story with the absent black father and not with the apartheid system of migrant labor and you have an entirely different story. And then I really got thinking. Start the story with a Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October and not with the Nakba, the disaster 75 years ago and you have an entirely different story. Is that powerful? Secondly, she says there's no single story that defines a person. To insist on only negative stories is to flatten the person's experience and to overlook the many other stories that form a person. This idea that it's just one-dimensional and to flatten is a wonderful word. You flatten the experience. You, you put it in a box and you leave it there. The single story, she says, creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, because comedians often will use stereotypes as a way of launching into humor. It's not that they're untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. It's not that they're untrue, it's just that they're incomplete. They make one story become the only story. The challenge, she says, is to engage with all the stories of that place and that person. Engage all the stories of what's happening in the Middle East, not just one story. Engage all the stories of, for example, in my case, the black father or the black, uh, the, the black academic. And then she says, the consequence of the single story is it robs people of dignity. And then I thought about this a little bit more, and it actually robs people of their status as one made in the image of God. And I thought a little bit further, it makes our recognition of equal humanity before the cross difficult. If you only focus on the one story, the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is no longer equal. 
And then she goes on, and this is very powerful. It emphasizes, the, the single story emphasizes how we are different rather than how we're actually similar. And, and when I was chatting to those black fathers, I realized how similar I was to them. But if I had remained with the single story of absent black fathers who are only good for being big, strong men, I would have been seen as different to them. But in me just listening and hearing them, and then hearing my story as well, we realized actually how similar we are. And the aspirations we have for our own lives and for our children and our family are actually the same. The danger of the single story. So what if, as I just said, I looked at black men not only as physically powerful and strong, but also just as capable of being as smart as the next man. Or just as desiring to be present with their children as any other father would want to be. What if the US and the UK, instead of this past week, voting against and abstaining from a UN Security Council resolution for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, looked at the Palestinians as human beings, deserving of security, prosperity, <coughs> and human rights just as much as the Jews are. What if? When we reject a single story, when we realize that there's never a single story about any place or people, we allow the light of the kingdom of God to break through. When we reject that single story about a place, about history, about a person we allow. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then we have this passage in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ. The single story stands opposed to this idea that we are all one in Christ. It stands opposed to the idea that one day in heaven that, we will, that there will be this diversity and that all people will stand at the equal footing of the cross. And we see many examples of how Jesus actually balances a person's story. The, Brandon mentioned the Samaritan woman in John 4 last week. Last week. The single story there is that she's a woman of ill repute ill repute and a social outcast. Now, for those of you who heard my sermon, sermon message, a couple of months ago, there's actually evidence that she was a Samaritan priestess, actually a spiritual leader. And when you start to look at her in that way, you start to see this multi-dimensional person. And the reason that that story says that she's a spiritual leader was that Jesus needed to convince her that he was the Messiah so he could get access to the Samaritan people that she led. And in verse 40 we read this, So when the Samaritans came to him, that's Jesus, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. Not believing the single story. Jesus didn't believe the single story. He knew who else she was. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, the single story, well, the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the Samaritan helps a Jewish person who's just been beaten and robbed and left to dead to die while a priest and a Levite, both Jews, pass by. That's the, that's the, the context. And the single story is this, that Samaritans were actually genetically related. 
to the remnants of northern tribes. When the Babylonians came and took the Israelites back to Babylon, they left uh, remnants of Samaritans within, um, uh, within uh, northern Israel, within uh, yeah, Samaria. And what the Babylonians did is they sent their own people to, to Samaria to assimilate with the Samaritans. And many Samaritans ended up marrying these Babylonians. And so there was actually this, this racism towards Samaritans by the Jews because they were seen as compromised people, as those who were intermarrying. And that's the single story. That's a single story that the Jews believe. But Jesus balances the story and he shows what neighborly love looks like, that it transcends ethnic and religious boundaries. And he actually shows the Jews of the time that there's a Samaritans who are actually living out the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus shows us that the single story is not the representation of Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is a tax collector despised by his own people because he's working with the Romans, story of place, and he's extorting his own people. By dining with Zacchaeus, Jesus balances the story by recognizing Zacchaeus' potential for repentance and transformation. And we see that in verse 7. All the people saw this, saw that Jesus had invited him for dinner, and began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The danger of the single story is that we don't see the person the way Jesus sees that person. The danger of the single story is we only judge people by the behavior that offends us. We only judge people by the behavior that offends us. The danger of the single story is that we only read, listen to, or watch content that confirms our point of view. We live in an echo chamber because we don't want to be challenged by some other thought or by some other point of view or by some other person because it's uncomfortable. And so we read certain newspapers or we subscribe to certain apps. We watch only certain things on YouTube. So one of the things I've tried to do during this whole Middle East story is I follow the, the Jewish spokesperson for government. Very difficult to follow that guy. I, I, I reckon if I saw him, I would. I'd probably kill him. That's, that's, I mean, I genuinely feel that towards him. But I watch his stuff. Because I've got to be challenged by what is going on in the mind of the Jewish person. I have to be challenged. I follow, I follow the state of Israel. I want to see their point of view. And it's very difficult for me to do that. But that is what it means when we, when we realize the danger of the single story, of the story of Hamas, or the story of the Zionists, or the story of the white person, or the story of the black person, or the story of the man, or the story of the woman. I met this woman. She heads up an organization called Think People. And she, I think, she has, okay, let me not say that, but what I know <laughs> is that she was so taken aback 
Corecheția. She was so taken aback by a gang rape in India that she went and interviewed those 14 men and heard their stories. And as a result, she started this organization because she realized from those interviews how damaged those men were. <coughs> when we look at gender-based violence in this country, and we judge these men. We are hearing the single story. We are not seeing how many men have had their dignity stripped through apartheid. Have had their self-esteem absolutely obliterated. Where they've been felt, where they've been told that they are nothing. That they have no role in society. And so in that moment, when they can, for whatever reason, um, show their power, they do, in the most horrific ways. The danger of the single story is that we don't understand where these men come from. And the danger is that we judge them through the thing that offends us. Doesn't in any way condone their behavior. We must condemn their behavior. But if we're going to be a society, and, and even more than that, a church, a community, we have to move outside of the story that we hear. And remember, the media very rarely actually get balances the story. The media holds on to the single story because the single story brings clicks. The single story brings eyes. And a single story divides a society. And everybody who's in power relies on dividing people. That's how apartheid worked. It was dividing people. When the homelands were created, there weren't all black people together. What did they do? They divided them amongst different tribes. And so there was tribal conflict. You just have to look at KZN in the early 90s between the Zulus and the Tosses. People, both people have been oppressed. And yet the government succeeded in divide and conquer. And that's what the media does. That's what corporates do. They tell you one side of the story. And so they divide and conquer. But when people, when we understand that actually there's more that, that brings us together than divides us, it's in that unity that actually change happens. Whether it's in this country, that's what the politicians want us to believe. We, we, we're apart more than we're together. There, there are very few South Africans in this country who want the same thing. We want a prosperous country. We want a secure country. We want a, a country uh, you know, that, we don't, that you know, we don't only celebrate our sports teams. You know, we want to celebrate more than that. We all want the same thing. But the media and the politicians thrive on divide and conquer. And this is what uh, Chimamanda is saying. The danger of the single story. The danger... The danger of the single story is that we ignore context and lift up the interpretation that silences our fears. When we read the Bible, we actually negotiate with the text. There's no, you know, Western evangelicalism wants you to believe that there's this like, that, that, that basically there's one view of, of, of viewing the Bible and that you can actually get this almost 
uh, a cultural understanding of the Bible that you can lift it out of context because there's one way. No, it's not true. And wh why we have done that is because we want to confirm the things that our echo chamber has us believe. And we want to view people who are different to us. And we want to, in a way that sort of takes care of our fear, quells our fear. So we, we try and lift out interpretations from the Bible that confirms how we feel and makes us no longer afraid of what the other might do because we know we've got the Bible on our side. The danger of the single story. And so I think the challenge for, for us is when we sit and look, remember, when we're sitting in our life groups, we are definitely looking at each other uh, in, you know, judging each other, if you like, from the perspective that our script, similar to what I did when that guy told us a PhD in electricity, you thought, oh, really, what? You know, you, it, it sort of lingers under the surface, and, and that's fine, it's, it's good to admit that. But then we, we counteract that by, by doing as Jesus did, just hear the other side. And, and allow that to, to wash over you and not to be threatened by it. And not to feel judged by it. When people share about their experience under a card table and you're one person, there's no reason to be, feel guilty or judged. People are sharing their story. It's their experience. And when white people share about the ignorance of apartheid, not ignorance of apartheid, but ignorance of what was happening, that was their experience. For many white people growing up in apartheid, similar to the propaganda we see in the Middle East now, the nationalist governments were absolute pros at propaganda. And they kept, I remember they, in, in, when I was in the 80s, my dad, the, there was a newspaper called the Rand Daily Mail. The cops went in there, and it was an independent newspaper, and they shut that place down. They took everything. And it was a guy, uh, who's the guy who started the Freya Vietblatt? Max Lebrecht was the one guy who sort of stepped out and, and, and wanted white people, white Afrikaans people, to understand what was going on. And, 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 and just hearing the story and allowing you to step outside of that single story will actually bring us more unified and, and, and closer together in our understanding of each other and our country and our society. All right. Beware the danger of the single story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that your son Jesus really set the example and the way for us to approach each other and to be challenged by the fact that each of us are made in your image and each of us have, have a far more complex story uh, than a face value, than the stereotypes. Yes, Help us, Lord, to have the courage to hear the other stories, to hear stories of other people without feeling judged, without feeling guilty, without feeling afraid, but rather, like your son showed us, with, uh, to view the story of others with compassion, with love, uh, with curiosity. We're on a road, Lord, and, and we want this church, I hope, to be that that spring, as we've spoken, so where we can come drink deeply uh, from each other and be satisfied by each other and be buoyed by each other and be unified by each other. And we pray that your spirit would 
would just transform those times that we spend in each other's presence, whether it be in What's Your Story or around a dinner table or whatever the case is. And then as we go out into the world, into our workplaces and into the streets and into the shops, and we see people who, who, who make us afraid um, or who are different from us, help us to, to capture that, that thought that says that is the single story and I'm going to be that single story and this is who that person is. Help us to to hear your spirit speak and say, no, that person is more than the story that you've been told. It's more than the stereotype that is in your head. Help us to be people who are open-handed, who are gracious, who are compassionate. These are all difficult things to do, Lord, in a, life, in a, in a, in a country like ours where there's so much inequality and division and, and fear and insecurity. It's like we just want to sort of go back, for those of us who can, behind like our walls and hide. Help us to to rage against that, to fight against that, to get out, and to, to be the people of God, to be ambassadors for your kingdom, Lord, to shine light into places where there's just people holding on to that single story. Help us to be that, that light that says, no, there's more to this person or to this place than just that story. Mm -hmm. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.